And take a seat. Woo. Well, happy Sunday. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the elders here at the church. So uh, if you've been following along with us probably the last couple months, we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount, and Pastor Trace wrapped that up last Sunday. We're starting a new series entitled Family Strong. So we're taking a break from preaching through whole books of the Bible. We're going to take about a month and really preach through the different seasons of just life in family. So this Sunday we are specifically preaching on what the Bible has to say about singleness and dating. Then we're moving on to parenting and raising up and discipling our kids and then ending on building a lasting Christ-like marriage. So, I have to admit, when Trace sent the email about the possible topics we were going through, I quickly volunteered myself to be preaching on singleness and dating. I, I feel like we could do like separate conferences on singleness and dating alone, like me being up here for four hours. But luckily for you guys, we only have about half an hour of me being up here. Um, but I just have a huge heart for this topic because I think one reason is I now have a beautiful baby daughter. And uh, as, whew, yeah, we can, we can share. As much as I want her to be married to Jesus her whole life, my wife wants grandkids, and so one day some mean old man is going to take her away from me, and I really want her to make wise choices in this regard. Second, you know, for years my wife and I's ministry is really focused on kind of the 18 to 24-year-old range, and we've just loved ministering to men and women in this age group, but what has caused my heart to just break so many times is to see people were pouring into compromise and make unwise choices when it comes to singleness and dating. So I desperately want you guys to know this morning that God's design for singleness and dating is a much better, fuller, joy-filled way than what the world is offering you. So I realize here, not everyone is in the singleness and dating season of their lives, but you will have kids someday who are in that season, or you do know young people in your lives that you can encourage in the Lord. So I want to encourage you, even if you're not in that season, to take good notes so that you'll be able to replicate this to others, and there will be application to your life also. So I... I kind of feel weird because I, I feel like I'm saying this every single time I'm up here, but I have to confess that since I've been married to my beautiful wife, I've really grown to like romantic comedies, especially of the Hallmark sort. Any Hallmark fans I made the mistake last time of asking that question, but what I've noticed is kind of this pervading theme running throughout these movies is that they're all kind of the same. Right? When you think about it, there's usually like the main actor or actress is this busy person working in the city. They're, they're climbing the corporate ladder. They're, they're pursuing their personal ambition. And then something happens back home that, has, that makes them like stop and go back home, usually like where they're from in the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. <laughs> right? And they come back and they, and they meet their like old high school, high school boyfriend or girlfriend or or they see this unassuming friend that's grown up to be like this humble, 
courteous, sensitive man. And then we're fast forwarding like an hour and a half into the movie and the main actor is like struggling with this and finally they fall madly and helplessly in love with their country girlfriend or boyfriend. They fall happily ever after, or they live happily ever after with their Mr. and Mrs. Soulmate. Basically every Hallmark movie ever made. Now what cracks me up is that, you know, my wife and I joke about this, but what they don't show in these movies is a month going in after the wedding, she wakes up right next to him and she gets a full width of his dragon breath in the morning, right? What they don't show is their constant communication issues because she's an extreme extrovert and he is an introvert. Maybe to make this even more realistic, what they don't show is the fact that she's so infatuated with this person and, and that even though he says he's a Christian, in reality he has no desire to lead his family or even go to church in the first place. So if we break it down, the plot is usually along the lines like this. They, they grew up right in the country and yet they departed, they went, out, went after and chased their personal ambition and, and their, their greed and, and yet... They came back to their old lives, they met their future soulmate, and that soulmate changed everything in their lives, and they lived happily ever after. We hear this plot again and again and again. Now what, what does this kind of sound like? As Christians, this sounds like a plot, a narrative of a story that we should know very well. The narrative of creation, fall, Redemption, restoration. That we have been created to have a right relationship with God and yet we have sought rule for our own lives. We've done our own thing and we're separated from God in our sin and yet redemption, Jesus Christ enters into his own creation, dies on the cross for us to reconcile us to God and he will come back one day and restore all things and we will live happily ever after worshiping him. That's the real story. But as I feel for this younger generation because as we watch movie after movie and am influenced again and again and again by this, we start to kind of, I guess, veer away and start trusting in another narrative. If you don't believe me, I've heard this again and again and again that when I just meet Mr. or Mrs. Soulmate, everything is going to be so much better in my life that I have this hole in my heart and it longs to be filled with that special someone. And I think because we have this intense longing, we are often tempted to compromise in who we choose to date and how we choose to date. So if you're here this morning and you're single and you're tempted to compromise in your standards, or maybe you are already compromising. Let me give you hope this morning that Jesus says there is a better way and a better design for singleness and dating that the world is preaching to you. So with that very long intro, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles and see what God expects of us in these particular seasons of our lives. So we're going to be opening our Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. 
We'll be reading verses 37 through 39. This shouldn't be an earth-shattering command we read here from Jesus. But before we do, let's go ahead and pray and prepare our hearts. Father, we come to you needing your spirit to help us submit to your word. Needing your spirit to show us that Jesus is better. He is more beautiful, more satisfying, more fulfilling than what we're putting our hope in. Father, would you help us be obedient? Would you help us find our true satisfaction in Christ alone this morning? In your precious name, amen. So in this context, Jesus is responding to a lawyer who asks him, what is the greatest commandment? He responds with these words, verse 37, 39. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is, the great, this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is essentially saying here that every aspect of who you are, you are to love God and be totally devoted to Him and His commandments. And then we see in verse 39, it does not say that we are to love ourselves. Jesus is not commanding us to do that like, like many people like to think. Rather, Jesus is already assuming our nature to put ourselves first, to love ourselves. And He's telling us to love and treat others like we would like to be loved and treated. So this is the interpretation of the passage. Remember, there is a one interpretation of every passage, every verse, but there can be countless different applications. So in applying these verses to singleness and dating, what we can say here is that God expects us to, to love and be completely devoted to Him above all else rather than your boyfriend girlfriend, or even fiancé. Simple enough. And we're going to give concrete examples of what that looks like here later on, but let's go ahead and pair up this anchor passage with another passage. And I know we just covered this a few weeks ago, but let's go ahead and put up Matthew 6, verse 33 up there. So in this context, Jesus is finishing his words on the topic of earthly worries, and he's now charging us with our responsibility in a lot of these things. He says... But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I remember when I was single and just going through that dating process, there was a million worries that, I, that came over me. Who, am I finally going to meet that person? Am I ever going to get married? What if this happens? What if they dump me on the second day? All these different worries. And then I'm reminded again of the simplicity. You can't control all that stuff, but what you can control is if you're putting Jesus and seeking Him first in your life. So in applying this to dating and pairing it with Jesus' words here in Matthew 22, the simple responsibility that God desires for us in these seasons is that we should love and put Jesus first in our lives. And as we are doing these things, God will take care of the rest. So here's what it looks like. As we are Seeking Christ first, he will shape us into the man or woman in Christ so that we can be that Christ-like spouse one day. As we are seeking him first, if he so chooses, he will lead us to that Christ-like spouse we are trusting him for. 
as we are seeking Christ first, if it is His will for you to stay single, you will not waste the gift of singleness as you are leveraging your freedom to do things for God's kingdom as a single person that married couples have a much harder time doing. This is all assuming that you are persuaded by the what. And that should be enough. God commanded it, we should obey. But I also want to show you the why. And as I was preparing this this sermon early in the week, I was going to move on from the what, like what are we responsible for, to the how, and walking this out in concrete application in our lives. But I don't know if you guys have been covering the news. Um, Earlier this week, one of the pastors that I have looked up to for years and uh, announced on Instagram that he was no longer a Christian. And I was, I was devastated to hear that. And I say this because this, this is relevant. This particular pastor was one of the premier voices in the, the purity movement of the church. I don't know if you guys remember that, like a decade or two decades ago, the purity conferences and all that. But as I researched this movement, there's just this great amount of people that, that, that were denouncing all these books, denouncing all these conferences, said that they ruined their lives and, and, and they just broke their hearts away from the church. And, and as I was reading this, this absolutely devastated me and broke my heart. Not because I thought that the, the purity movement was wrong, right? God's word holds a very high standard that we're not even to have a hint of sexual morality, especially in the seasons of singleness and dating. But what breaks my heart is that all these people, even these pastors, saw the purity movement as a formula to the perfect marriage or a formula to meeting that Christ-like spouse one day. Church, here's the thing. The Christian life is not a formula. You can do all the right things. You can be pure up until marriage. You can do, be obedient to all God's commands, and yet you can still have a broken marriage. But what I want us to see here is that we are not trusting in a formula, but we are trusting in a person. So instead of moving straight from the what to the how, I want us to see the why this morning. Because when we get the why right, the how's the concrete application will inevitably follow in our lives. So let's go ahead and turn our Bibles over to Isaiah chapter 55. Going Old Testament here. So, in the context, the prophet Isaiah is pointing forward to the time of the messianic kingdom, when time when Jesus will set up his reign. And God says these words in view of the news of the gospel, news that a king is coming and his reign will be perfect. And in verse 1, it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This word, thirsts, is a metaphor for desiring what truly satisfies someone. So if you're looking to satisfy your deepest longings to fill that hole in your heart, come to King Jesus. When it says, come by wine and milk, these are symbols of joy and satisfaction. So in coming to Jesus, it costs nothing, and yet we gain everything. 
But notice the cost of going after other things that are not Christ. Let's read verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Church, there is a cost for unbelief. There is a cost for believing that other things can truly satisfy us. And applying this to singleness and dating, let me give you some, some brutal truths here. Your girlfriend or boyfriend that you're infatuated with or even in love with will not truly satisfy you. Maybe you're single and, and you're looking forward to the day that you'll get married. Maybe that reality comes and you marry your best friend, your love, and you're you're, you're living out that godly and Christ-like marriage, even that marriage cannot truly satisfy your soul. Rather, only Jesus can truly satisfy you and your deepest longings and give you that true, lasting, fuller joy. Let's pair this up with a couple other passages. Let's, look, let's go to, uh, to John 7, verse 37, 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, notice the similarity between Isaiah 55, anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So if you thirst, come to Jesus and he will satisfy you. Let's put John 15, verse 10 through 11. Jesus is wrapping up his teaching on him being the vine, us being the branches, and bearing fruit through him. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So they're great verses for the unbeliever, but these are equally as important for the believer. Yes, we are addressing singleness and dating here, but as believers, we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, yet we are still tempted to go after other things, to go after the created rather than the creator to truly give us joy and satisfaction, fulfillment in life. Thus, it is only when we embrace that Jesus is the one that truly satisfies us that we can move to the house. And it's only when we embrace this truth that we can truly recover and pursue God's design in singleness, dating, and eventually marriage. So let's go ahead and move on and give some concrete guidance for practical living in the seasons of singleness and dating. So what I forgot to mention earlier on in the sermon is that I only have half an hour with you. So I am going to miss things. So if you have any questions or want me to repeat something, go ahead and text your questions up on there. And myself, another elder, will do our best to answer them here at the end. So, in going back to our anchor text this morning of, of Matthew 22 and, and Matthew 6, we, we are challenged with the responsibility to love God and put Him first in our lives. I don't mean that we are to put Jesus on a list of like God, country, core, family. That's not what I mean here. <laughs> what I mean is that Jesus is chief here. And then all the way at the bottom of the list comes everything else. That Jesus not only is the chief, but he radically affects everything else on that list. He radically affects how we are 
treat our wives. He radically affects how we raise our families, how we work as ambassadors of Christ. Jesus changes everything. So when we are putting him first, I want to give several concrete principles for what this looks like in the season of singleness. So first, putting God first in singleness looks like being content in your situation. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. So Paul opens up this section with this verse, and we'll soon move on to apply this to singleness later on the chapter. And what Paul is not doing, he's not commanding that we can't marry if we so desire. What Paul is saying is that God is in control, and he has assigned seasons of our lives like singleness for a reason. But church, notice, we cannot possibly be content in our situations unless we are finding our contentment and satisfaction alone in Christ. Let's move on to the next point. Putting God first in singleness looks like not wasting the gift that God has given you. I've heard that singleness is the gift that no one really wants, right? And I can understand that. In, in my old group of friends up in Orange County, I was the very last one to be married. And I was sick and tired of being the third wheel on all their dates and all their game nights. And so I just wanted to be married, and I was trying desperately for that to happen. But in God's wisdom, he waited a few more years before I met my beautiful wife. But in the point earlier, we talked about how God has us in these seasons for a particular reason. I want to suggest to you a biblical reason. Let's put up 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32-34. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. We'll stop there. So as single people, we... You guys usually have a greater amount of freedom to do whatever you want. You don't have to worry about making decisions that are going to affect your wife and your kids. You don't have to worry about what time you have to show back up home. You can go on and on and on and on. But let me suggest to you something here. Don't let your increased freedom serve your selfish desires. Rather, use your increased freedom to seek the Lord and serve others. If Christ is your greatest joy, you're going to want to spend time seeking more of Him and using your time to make others find their greatest joy in Him. So please, don't waste this time. And um, praying through this sermon, I was waffling on whether or not I would say this or not, but I, I want to give a concession here to the, to the wives here whose husbands are deployed and even to the wives whose husbands will be deployed here in a few months. Gosh, seeing my wife raise our little daughter and just seeing how hard it is, I cannot imagine what you're going through, especially you who have multiple kiddos back at home. But I want to encourage you, I, not as a command, but as a way to maybe think through this differently. The usual recourse is to maybe go back home for a few months on deployment. 
But I want to encourage you, there's so many other hurting women in your community. There's so many other hurting women that are also in your same boat that need the gospel, that need the hope of Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to pray through this. When you're facing the situation again, look to use this increased time to be a light for Christ in your neighborhoods. So next, putting God first. Okay, we're going to move on to dating now. Okay, well, as in singleness, we're going to have a few points for dating here. So, now for those in the dating season of lives, putting first, God first in dating. Just kidding, singleness. I messed up my notes. Putting God first in singleness looks like trusting in the Lord instead of your own control. Okay, again, I was there. I get it. You want to get married, and that is a good thing. But let me, let me just say this here. God is completely sovereign. He is in total control, and he is in way more control than you and I give him credit for often. Now, I'm, I'm not opposed to online dating websites. I've met plenty of friends who have met their spouses on Christian Mingle. That's not a bad thing. But I think there is a, a fine line between trusting God and desiring total control through these platforms. Here's what I mean by this. If you're on like eight different dating websites and you're constantly checking your phone, you're constantly checking to see if that beautiful Christian girl swiped right or not, and it's affecting your day-to-day, this probably reveals a motive and a desire for control rather than humbly trusting in God through the potential dating process. Now, what also reveals control is when we give in to compromise in dating someone we shouldn't. I've heard many things along the lines of, well, that person isn't a Christian or they're, or they're you know, they grew up in the church but they haven't been to church in 15 years, and, and, and they're, but they're interested. Let me just say something. Flirt to convert. It's a thing. That's why it's a phrase. Flirt to convert rarely works, right? We've heard the, the stories of the girl who invited a guy in. He comes to church. He gets radically saved, and his life turns around. He becomes a pastor one day. And, and let me just say, God is really gracious. But for every one of those stories, there's countless of other stories where it did not end that way. Maybe I've also, you know, I've heard excuses to like, well, I'm just in a really small church. Where am I going to find this person? And you can go on and on and on and on, but I think when, when we're going on with these statements, what this reveals is that we're putting God in a box rather than trusting God to lead you to that future spouse that he has for you trusting him for. Again, God has this whole life thing way more figured out than we give him credit for. So let's move on to the actual season of dating. So, again, I don't have three hours with you, but I'm going to give you the, the basics of the hows and walking this out. So first, putting God first in dating looks like allowing other brothers and sisters in Christ to have input through the dating process. So one of the, one of the dangers that we face in Lone Ranger Christianity, where you try to follow Christ without being committed to a body of believers, is that we 
we often forego the wisdom of others who are more mature than us in incredibly important decisions in life, like who you are going to marry. Something that you have to assume while you're going through this process is that if you're just infatuated or even in love with this person, that perhaps you will be blinded and not observe certain traits in that person that could be deeply problematic to marriage in the future. Instead, if we're seeking to honor Christ through this process, we should utilize the maturity of, of older and, and brothers and sisters of Christ to give their insights and observations of the person you're dating. So please be intentional to hang out with older Christians through this process. So second... Putting God first in dating looks like submitting to God's standard of purity. And what is that standard exactly? Ephesians 5.3, Paul lays out a very high standard of purity. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. In the Greek, sexual morality is, is rendered parneia, and it includes all sexual sins. And I was looking at different translations. The NIV rendered this verse not even a hint of sexual immorality. So in your context, having not even a hint of lust toward your boyfriend, girlfriend, or even fiancé. Let me just say this. We often think of obedience to God's commands always in the negative. Well, I just have to avoid this, or I can't do that. But let me just say, Please don't miss out on what you're gaining in seeking to be obedient to purity in God's commands. God knows what he is doing and his way is truly better and his joy is greater in obedience than giving in and compromising to his standards. So again, I, I wish I could unpack this a lot more, but I'm going to go ahead and move on. So in walking this out, I would greatly advise you just to not get in unwise and compromising situations while you are dating someone. So don't be alone together in an empty house. Really seek to be dating in public and please allow older, more mature Christians to hold you accountable and encourage you in utilizing those protective buffers while you are dating this person. Last. Putting God first in dating looks like pursuing your Christ-likeness above all else. So I think a few weeks ago, there was a question that came in and it, and it asked, is it a sin or is it really unwise to date an unbeliever? And as I was kind of processing through that question again this week and preaching about this topic, I think that's perhaps the wrong question to ask. I think the reason is, is we always like to ask questions in the negative. And, and sometimes the motive of our hearts when we're asking those questions is, hey, what can I get away with and yet it still not be a sin? Rather, what I think would be more helpful is asking this question in the positive. How can I most glorify and honor Christ through dating? It would probably be a better question to ask. 
And if God's will for our lives is our sanctification, as 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, the, the process of becoming more like Christ, more holy, then why would you ever even desire to date an unbeliever? Said as you are entering into a potential relationship, be asking yourselves these questions. Will dating this person make me more like Jesus? Will this person pull me away or even stump my growth in Christ? Or will they be a catalyst for my relationship with God as we are growing together? Be asking yourself these questions. So again, let's, let's land the plane this morning. And uh, you may be in various camps this morning, anywhere from affirming everything I just said or uh, maybe being confused or even a little embarrassed or even ashamed. But I want to address three separate camps this morning as we close. First, let me address you this morning who have compromised. Maybe you have married that unbelieving spouse, or maybe you are you know, leading up into marriage. You have given in and, and stumbled in purity countless times. Let me just say this. In Christ, there is great grace. Yes, there are natural consequences to sin, and you may have experienced those, but God has not rejected you. He has not stopped loving you any less. And if you are in Christ, He is still resolved to forming Christ in you. He has not given up on you. And I think the fact that you're here this morning listening to this message is evidence to that fact. So in light of this, you are married to an unbelieving spouse. I want to encourage you, keep on being faithful to that unbelieving spouse and seek to win your spouse through your conduct. Now those who are being tempted to compromise, I want to urge you, don't buy this false gospel. Don't buy this false narrative that we hear again and again through the Hallmark Channel, again and again through romantic comedies that if I just meet Mr. Right, he's going to satisfy me. I want to urge you that that boyfriend or girlfriend that you're dating that doesn't really treasure Jesus is not going to satisfy your deepest longing for being valued or loved. Rather, we find true fulfillment in these areas in Christ alone. God is the one who declares us loved, forgiven, and adopted as sons and daughters when we embraced Christ as our Savior. I want to urge you, just with gentleness, but also firmness, if you are in this situation, please break this relationship off. Turn and run to Jesus and recover and pursue His design in dating and saving us. Last, before we roll into communion, I want to address everyone else here in this room. I appreciate all you guys being respectful. As it's probably only addressing about 15% of the congregation, but... I want to urge you, coming back to the passage in Isaiah 55 where we see Jesus is the only one that truly satisfies us and gives us true joy, ask yourself this question, where or in what ways are you seeking to fill your soul's thirst or hunger in created things rather than the Creator? Where or with whom are you seeking to find ultimate meaning, significance, or fulfillment in life.
These questions are for the unbeliever, but also very much so for the believer. As I said earlier, we are all tempted to bend and find these things in the created, in idols, in God's substitutes, rather than Jesus himself. So I want to encourage you to identify those areas as we roll into communion. Neuter them. Identify that they cannot bring you what you are looking to them for and turn and worship Jesus this morning. Let's go ahead and close. Bring up the band here. Father, we love you. We praise you. I pray, first of all, for my dear brothers and sisters, God, who are in this season of life, that they would see you, Jesus, as the one who is truly satisfying. You, Jesus, as the one who can bring us, Lord, joy. Bring us, God, rest. That we would look to you, Father God, and in embracing these truths, that we would be able to walk out the application, walk out the obedience, God. And I, I just pray, Lord, for the rest of my brothers and sisters, God, that you would help them identify where they are finding ultimate significance and value in trying to find that fulfillment in life. That you would show them, God, that there is a cost for that. That they will continue to, to thirst, continue to hunger. Help them to turn and find their rest, their satisfaction in Christ alone. In Jesus' name, amen.